Welcome to the Wealthy.com podcast, a wellness series focused on health, inspiration, and innovation. But all right, so let's move on a little bit here. Um, so kind of the real meat and potatoes, why I wanted to gather you guys all. Um, kind of about a month ago or so, we were seeing a huge uptake in kind of the Native American population here um, in, in Arizona, just getting decimated by this. And then kind of at the same time, I had my charger saying, and that was like the 15th Hispanic name I just called to say they were positive for their, their COVID. So I was like, you know, I, I looked up some stuff and I, I was pretty, pretty astounded what I saw. So uh, I just wanted to run a couple numbers by you guys um, and then we'll talk about it. So the age adjusted hospitalization rate that we're seeing, and this is per 100,000 population. So um, Caucasian people is only 40, Asian Pacific Islanders 48, Hispanic, it jumps up to 160, Black 178, and Native American 221. So we're looking at massive jumps from white and Asian up to the the other uh, races here. And then not to mention that um, the death rates for both Black and Native Americans are two times you know, expected what we're seeing with the rest of the population. So it's pretty, pretty insane jump to me. Yeah. I want to talk with you guys about this sort of stuff. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's there's so many layers to this. Uh, all of us probably on this call, uh, you know, are aware of the health disparities that exist for cardiovascular disease. Um, the nexus and cross point of COVID-19 and cardiovascular disease is, is something that we've seen. And it's unfortunately not a surprise to see that um, the Black communities, Hispanic communities, Native American communities, um, Asian Pacific Islanders as well, who deal with diabetes, high blood pressure, high blood pressure, excuse me, high cholesterol at increased rates with increased sickness, increased amounts of death in those communities are now um, just having a compounding problem with COVID-19 on top of this. Um, you know, it's, it's, I'm pausing because I'm saddened, really. Like I'm, I'm deeply, deeply saddened by this and deeply concerned uh, for these communities because as you just pointed out, there's generations that are being lost. Um, you know, with these families who are getting this. Well, I'll just, I'll say that, um, as I mentioned before, my research has to do with um, kind of the, how genetic ancestry can affect uh, protein levels and metabolite levels and disease states. And uh, I mean, I, I, of course, I think there's, that's a to totally valid approach to things since I'm doing it I'm, and I'm kind of basing my career on it. That being said, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's pretty clear to me, seems pretty clear to me that, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the issues surrounding COVID's impact on uh, underserved communities really is more societal than anything else. If you look at the big, if you look at the big things that we're all touting, right, is uh, wearing masks, six feet of separation, staying home, and, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, there are, I mean, just in terms of, I'll just speak for Hispanic people, a lot of, you know, there's a, tend to be a lot of people uh, living in the same household. Um, I know in my own house, you know, there was four kids, two parents. We regularly had, you know, this isn't during right now, but, you know, we regularly, regularly had aunts, uncles staying with us that were transitioning into, you know, to, to waiting for their green card. And I know there's families like that now too. Um, you know, you look at people who have to go to work Right. Um, there, there were, I heard a few stories about, you know, African-American barbers, I believe one in New York, maybe one in Detroit or Chicago or somewhere who, um, you know, he had to feed his kids, went to work and got COVID and died. Um, and so while I do think there's plenty to be said in terms of many different diseases um, about the genetic differences between us, um, I do think that in terms of a, of a pandemic, um, it seems to me pretty crystal clear that the problems, the vast majority of the issues stem from socioeconomic factors that for too long medicine has kind of ignored as a whole. Obviously, there's a lot of people working on these things, but if you look at it kind of from a historical tra trajectory, we haven't nearly been doing enough as a, as a field. Um, and now we're it's kind of hitting, smacking us in the face. Um, just kind of my point. Yeah, I absolutely agree that a lot of this is uh, social, like you touched on um, living, you know, more densely in a, in a house together. And there's also, 
um, more of the kind of housing projects, which is much more um, minority predominant, as well as actually like jails, incarcerations, which unfortunately is a whole nother story to talk about. Yeah, I'll have to echo what Danny said. I mean, I didn't grow up on the reservation. I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the Navajo reservation is mostly in the northeastern corner of Arizona. It's pretty big. Um, but same thing, you don't have a single family home there. Like it's aunts, it's uncles, it's grandparents from both sides of family and we're a matriarchal society. And so it's up for the women's side to like tend to the husband's side. And um, the, it, the poverty level is still ridiculous. And these homes where uh, like my people live are in literally in the middle of nowhere. And there's absolutely no way to get water lines out there to get electrical power lines unless you have you're rich, you know, to have these companies come and make those lines for you. So even now, I'd say probably about 20 to 30% of our population still haul water. They come to a central water station, fill up their tanks, it goes back in their truck and they take it home for their families um, and for their livestock. So it's not just them. And I know that it's been talked about a lot, but because there's no running water, you're not able to wash your hands as often. You have the poverty level. You may or may not have a vehicle. Um, and depending on like the age and the household, it's like, do you have transportation going different places? Um, and then of course, like electricity, not being able to have food stored correctly, things like that. But um, what had happened was, and because I know a lot of people are like, well, how the heck did the Navajos get COVID onto the reservation? Because not very many people travel, but what had happened was there was a religious revival in a small town called Chilchimpatwa, which is near Chinle, um, which is up in that Northeastern corner. And that happened right around March. So you had a lot of people coming, mostly from California, I would say, um, but there were still a lot of people from the Midwest. And because they had that gathering and the people who had come are the ones who are going back to, you know, these households just full of people. Um, and because you're on the reservation and there's nothing to do, like our big events are, hey, let's all gather, let's have a cookout for a birthday party or, you know, let's have a, somebody's having a religious ceremony. So those things take place and it just spread like wildfire. It was just insane. So that's how it got on the res. And um, I know Brandon is probably seeing a lot more Navos being flown down from the reservation because they're, our Indian health hospitals are just overwhelmed and they're not staffed and they don't have the ability to keep people on ventilators there. Um, Fortunately, PIMC, so Phoenix Indian Medical Center down here in Phoenix, we're almost like a tertiary care center for the Indian Health Service. Um, we only have a 10 bed ICU as well. And right now it's completely full with COVID. We do have a small med surge unit too, um, who have a few negative pressure rooms. So, I mean, we're only able to keep so many people, but yeah, everybody's being flown out to Banner I think we've pretty much overwhelmed Albuquerque. I know last week on the house report when I was getting it at uh, PIMC, the valley was completely full and we we're actually transferring people to Prescott, which is a small town um, on the way up to Flagstaff, which is crazy. Like, how can you be in Phoenix, this huge metropolitan area and have to go to a small community hospital for a patient? But it's sad. Yeah. Uh, I work in a community hospital and so when all this started like all workers need to, to get like temperature check and they were asking us for symptoms and they were giving us a mask um, then uh, most of the patients uh, when they get well I, I'm not really sure like when that started but like when we discharge patients to the nursing home they have to self-quarantine and I mean, we see the numbers here in New Hampshire, like they still trending down despite that they open like mid-May and our numbers are still 
you know, trending down. Um, and I guess like that's actually is very like most of the population here they're like Caucasian white. And I know everybody's kind of touched on like the comorbidities. I mean, the obesity rate, the heart disease, the diabetes in the Navajos is just unreal. Yeah. I mean, even as a pediatrician, I would say almost half of the kids that come in for like well child checks and things like that are also overweight. And like you can educate as much as you can, but unless you're able to convince the parents and to get them to stop buying all the junk food, the processed food, um, and really make a whole family lifestyle change, it's really hard. And going back to those who do live on the reservation, I mean, commodity foods is still a thing. Like we still give out commodity foods. The government still goes out with the government clothes for the kids for school. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it still happens. And because everybody's so remote, like nobody's going to go buy fresh fruit. That's going to last a few days versus, you know, let's get like hamburger helper and macaroni and cheese and yeah. stuff like that. So like a vicious cycle. Right. And, it's almost the same sort of thing that we're seeing, but kind of reversed in, in um, like inner cities where there's just less stores in certain areas that, that sell the healthy organic, you know, vegetables and fruit. And it's again, more access to the, the junk food and the stuff that that'll stay on a shelf for weeks to months. It's just it's unfortunate. Yeah. I think that's, um, you know, one of the underlying things I'm hearing here is right. It's access to care. Um, is, and it's, it's not just care, um, obviously that's specific for healthcare, but it's access to all these social things that can uplift the family, uplift an individual, you know, uplift the community, which is healthy food, uh, spaces, green spaces to walk, right, and be outside, not be in hyper uh, tight and congested areas. Um, the ability to, it's interesting, I was reading an article about how some, I can't remember which county it was, I think it was in Texas, they set up drive-through testing um, and were really shocked to be like, why isn't anybody getting tested? But they didn't account for the fact that nobody has cars in that community, that they either walk uh, to work or take public transit. So drive-through testing as a you know mass solution to solve everybody's problems really isn't because it's for those people who can afford a car, right? Um, and, and it's something that for those of us who drive, you wouldn't really think about until you see it from the other side and say, how do a large majority of Americans live their lives, right? They get to work on the bus, they get to work in New York, perhaps on the Metro, uh, you know, whatever it might be. And we can't just have these sort of one size fits all solutions. Um, and we really need to be adapting to this virus before, you know, it changes uh, and sort of we're already behind the ball, unfortunately. So there's a lot of catching up we need to do. Yeah, yeah, it's just when we look at when we talk about disparities, you know, within the, within America itself, um, to really look at the disparity, um, health disparities will just follow that, you know, especially in communities of individuals of color. So it, it, it really, it really saddens me as well to, to really see that. But it, at, at the same time, it doesn't surprise me. You know, when we talk about uh, so many comorbidities, but also, you know, specifically for the African American community, um, the fear of the healthcare system or the fear of healthcare providers, um, just not knowing um, as far so much as, you know, the aspect of how your body functions, um, what food should you eat, what food shouldn't you eat. You might know that a food might not be good for you, but you might not want to uh, substitute it with something else, or you, you might not be able to afford what you need to do to be able to supplement it for something else. So it, it really is, is a sad struggle in transportation and um, insurance or the, um, even if you do have uh, government insurance, you might, you might not be able to see every provider. You might not be able to go to every PCP that you might choose to go to. You might only have a set um, location that you go to that receive government assistance to be able to supplement your health care. You know, so sometimes these systems might be overrun. So, you know, you might have to wait for hours to be seen. Or if you have a um, acute issue, they might only have one or two hour window within that day that you can be seen. And if you can't be seen that day due to work or transportation or childcare, 
you're not going to be seen. Yeah. You know, a lot of times we, we see these individuals in the emergency department and then they have waited way too long to come in for something that could have been dealt with, you know, early on. Mm -hmm. uh, now these individuals are very sick, you know, and then you have other family members that are coming in because they've tried to take care of them at home. So it's yeah. kind of a domino effect and, and, and it's really sad. Yeah, some of the numbers I was seeing on um, what you were just touching on was for the uninsured population, it's as high as 22% for Native Americans, 19 for Latinos, 12% for Blacks, 8% for Whites. Um, the other interesting thing I saw is obviously we're talking about po poverty rates, being able to afford foods or medicines and 24% um, for Native Americans, 22% for Blacks, 19 for Latino, and only 9% for Whites. So those are two huge disparities there that obviously link up with everything else we're speaking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that underscores the perfect storm that we're seeing because anytime there is an economic downturn and unemployment goes up, you know, it's these communities of color that lose um, their jobs first, right? Um, and you, you have that on top of the structure of insurance that we have prim primarily in the US where it's tied to employment. Um, leave alone just being able to afford it, the fact that access to it is often just tied to employment. You know, it's once again, not surprising, saddening, but not surprising that we're seeing uh, the numbers that you're mentioning um, in terms of the health disparities, the deaths, the sickness uh, in communities of color. And Antoine, can you touch a little bit more when you're talking about the, the mis almost like mistrust in, in healthcare? Yeah, I, I, I think just um, if we look back in, you know, just history, um, we can see usually um, communities throughout the world have been, um, you know, utilized as, as, you know, a layman's term, test dummies or individuals that we can, you know, um, that's, that's, ex that's exploit this, this group. Um, to be able to do testing, to be able to do vaccines, to be able to try for different medications, or to be able to um, give certain areas that you can only give certain type of testing, or you can only be seen for certain conditions if you can afford it. And if you can't afford it, then you only get this type of care, you know, or just looked at as, okay, you're a number, or look at it as, okay, you have high blood pressure, let me give you a pill versus why do you have blood pressure, high blood pressure? Is it a nutritional issue? Is it a stress issue? Is it, are you working at night? Are you working in the daytime? Do you have eight people that live in your home? Are we really diving into the issue or are we just looked at as just um, a meat market? You know, we give you a pill, we put a bandaid on it and then we push you on, you know, or really, getting into the aspect so many of uh, individuals that I know or family members that might go um, might be seen by a provider and it really don't get a full understanding of what's going on or why they taking this medication or or being discharged uh, from the hospital or discharged from primary care or the emergency department and they can't tell you what they were diagnosed with they discharged home with no understanding of what they were tested for, what it, what were they diagnosed for, and what are we treating, you know? So it's just that aspect that, you know, you lose trust if you feel like somebody doesn't have your best interest in heart. And a lot of aspects, um, you know, saddened from uh, communities of color, and I, I can speak specifically from African-American communities, you just, you don't have that trust in healthcare uh, system at, at all. You looked at it as a number. Yeah. I'd like to, if I could touch on a point real fast as far as trust in the, the black community, as far as that goes, I mean, if you go back to the Tuskegee experiments where they were, you know, essentially seeing what the effects of syphilis were, they had a treatment, but they wanted to see what, what happened with that. And so I still sense a distrust, especially the older population, which gets passed on, but it, it, it creates a distrust. And, and I, I, I talked with a, a lot of people, uh, you know, just on Facebook and just arguing about vaccines and those kind of things. And, and it's just a big part of it is just a mistrust. And they think that there's something evil going on when they're injecting them with something. And based on history, you know, it's, I, you know, you can understand why you feel that way, but 
I think that's something that is not um, ever really addressed. I think it wasn't until Bill Clinton, maybe in the 90s, when they even addressed it, they did what, what happened back then. And so I yeah, think that yeah. there's overall just a level of distrust. And then can you get to the doctor for your checkups and all these things? I mean, I, I don't need to see a study or statistic to know that if you go see a doctor regularly, you're probably going to be better off. And I think that kind of ties into the COVID, why some people do worse than others, but it's because it's they don't know that they have medical problems. You can say you don't have medical problems when you ask them, but if you don't go to the doctor, then how do you know? You could be diabetic. You haven't gone to the doctor in 15 years. So how do you, you can't really say that you have no underlying medical problems. And I think that's a big part of the, that we're going to see is that population of, you know, 30 to 50, unless you have something come up, a lot of people don't go to the doctor. And so either they can't take the time off, you don't have the insurance, whatever systemic problem, you know, or why, but those things have to be factored in. And I don't think that there's a way to accurately do that. And I think that just COVID has kind of exposed these flaws in our system that we've, that have been there. It's not, it's not new. They didn't just create the problem where you're saying, I can't remember, we said 20% of the population on the reservation doesn't have running water. Like that's not a COVID problem, but that's made worse by COVID. But that's a, that is a problem that, that needs to be addressed. Yeah. So Ernie, uh, speaking to what you were just talking about with the vaccines, uh, how do you think that's going to play out when we finally eventually have a vaccine for COVID? I, I've looked into this for many different reasons, but I think that there's going to be a, a lot of potential problems. Um, one, that we, we're having a anti-vaxxer movement over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, that even before this, people were not trusting in vaccines. And I used to argue people all the time about vaccines, and I, I couldn't understand why. And it, it people just have this mistrust in false sense of, they read a, you know, an article or a YouTube video that makes them think that they know something that they don't or that there's some grand conspiracy. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of resistance to the vaccines. My other concern is them rushing the vaccine through to, you know, there's, they have to meet these, we need a vaccine. I guess that's everybody's overall endpoint is like, if without a vaccine, it's going to be hard to open things up. And I think that there's going to be some resistance and I, I see it on, it's a, a problem that I'm not sure how you're going to get around next. I think there's going to be people that just aren't going to do it. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I think it's going to be a lot like the flu shot, like, oh, if I get this COVID vaccine, I'm going to get COVID. I mean, that's always everybody's, you know, justification yeah. when you're trying to get them vaccinated for flu every season. So. Claire, do you, see, that coming. do you see resistance to that at all in the reservation? So in the Indian health, not really. Um, everybody's pretty good with doing all the vaccines. It's actually really funny. It's more of the higher educated families that don't want to do any vaccines, which yeah. just blows my mind. Um, I'd say we probably have about 80% of our patients that will do a flu shot for sure. Um, I don't think we're gonna have as much problem in our population doing a vaccine, but I do think maybe in other um, minority groups that you may. Um, and then, I mean, I can't even imagine working in Scottsdale in a private practice, trying to convince like those families, even just to get regular vaccines. Like, I don't even know how they would get them to agree to a COVID mm. vaccine. I think that's going to be really difficult. Yeah. Claire, I have a question for you. Um, yeah. Without speaking towards numbers, but maybe just your general sense, what's the representation in terms of the medical professionals, primarily, I guess, doctors, um, in terms of in the, in the IHS? Does the oh. Navajo population, for example, actually have a lot of Navajo doctors? I guess is my question in a simple form. You know, I don't know the percent. There aren't very many. So I went to the University of North Dakota School of mm -hmm. Medicine, um, and people are like, oh my gosh, North Dakota's got a med school. But they have a program called Indians into Medicine, and it was mm -hmm. actually the founding program. It's called InMed in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And then we have, there's a little branch of it in the University of Arizona where I did undergrad in Tucson. 
So mm -hmm. their program every year in the entering class of UND's school, there's seven um, there's seven slots for a Native American student to be accepted. Mm -hmm. So we don't compete with anybody else. We just compete amongst Native American applicants. Yeah. You have to be registered into a federally recognized tribe. So you have to have a certificate of Indian blood, basically. And each tribe has a different blood quantum you have to fulfill in order to get a CIB. And um, so Uni University of North Dakota graduates the most Native American American Indian, Alaska Native uh, physicians in the country. So if you think about it, like there's seven, you know, American each Indian year. physicians coming out each year compared to, you know, people don't want to go work on the reservations. Nobody wants to be in the middle of nowhere. So it's unfortunate a lot of these IHS service units in rural areas end up unfortunately getting physicians who have lost their licenses in other states or people who just can't find work and IHS mm -hmm. is desperate so they end up hiring these people who may or may not care and it's unfortunate too because they'll pay really well because it's rural yeah so long story short there's not very many of us I at our hospital I probably say there may be 10 of us that are native that are physicians mm -hmm. and there's probably yeah, they're, they're, like a hundred like staff providers okay yeah the reason i asked was because earlier in this conversation you mentioned there's actually quite a high level of trust it sounds like with your patient population mm -hmm. and uh at least with 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 you and I, I presume the rest of the physicians there um and just to kind of piggyback from that on to what Antoine uh, Ernie said, which is the flip side is the level of mistrust, unfortunately, with the African-American community. Um, and I think part of that with the African-American community, and I know this from personal experience, but it definitely speaks towards representation. Um, you know, when I was in, I, I still see here, but specifically when I was in Baltimore during residency, the amount of times that uh, a black patient, you know, stopped me, reached out, grabbed my arm and said, it's so great to see you here um was it like i can't count them on my hands right um it, it happened almost every time i saw someone because they were surprised not just surprised they were thankful right that they were being represented on the other side of this patient physician dynamic um and and part of that goes to speak towards the trust you know uh ernie mentioned the tuskegee experiment i had this really um just every now and then you have an experience that sort of resets you and says, all right, that's still an issue. Um, that was something that came up actually pretty frequently when I was out in Baltimore. Um, I think regionally, uh, especially that, and then also what, what happened with Henrietta Lacks, those conversations were being had in the black community there in the, the DMV region. Hadn't heard it as much when I came to California, but I was in LA doing a um, kind of small group as we were designing our, our app actually. We went up to LA to um, talk with one of the black churches there, the AME church, and we were talking about just health and their access to care and how they felt about it. And that experiment came up as one of the reasons that their community doesn't engage heavily with physicians. Um, and, and just one of those levels, uh, just one of those things that's in the back of their minds. And to me, it was just goes to show how it's, you know, passed, not only passed on through generation, but something that we actively all as health professionals, um, regardless of our, you know, race that we identify with, we need to try to address through education and engagement and just saying we're here for you, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your socioeconomic status. Um, but yeah, it's a lot to think about. Yeah. I think all of that speaks to, which is kind of a buzzword, but kind of cultural competency, right? And I know I've, I've seen it firsthand myself with the Hispanic community um, where, you know, it's, it's great if someone's in there that's, that speaks totally fluent Spanish, right? That's, that's, that's nice. Um, but it's a whole nother thing. For example, I, I always use the example of, you know, my, my grandfather, he was, you know, he, he didn't go past the third grade. Um, and if, if you step to him uh, saying, you know, what they teach us in med school now, like, well, what do you think you have? And what do you think we should do for you, right? And he would think that you were a quack and he just wouldn't, he just wouldn't trust you, right? And he was uh, the type that maybe you had to, you know, maybe use a little bit of kind of um, fear in terms of like, you know, it's not enough to say, hey, 
you might get a stroke if you don't take your anticoagulation for AFib. You may have to stress the fact that, hey, there's worse things than death, right? You may become incapacitated and you might need your kids to take care of you, right? And to take care of you after you go to the bathroom and these things. Um, and so, you know, I, I think um, it's, it's very, unfortunately, it's, 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 it's negative things that we're talking about, but it's really nice to hear um, how, how we're all in our, in our specific ways um, you know, discussing this, this, what's very, you know, I, I always heard it as a, bu as a buzzword kind of cultural competency. And this is me, you know, being Hispanic. Um, but especially through residency and, you know, I, I know Cindy and I were talking about it the other day where, you know, we, we, we really do feel, you know, we, it's anecdotal, of course, but we really do feel that when we're able to talk with our, in particular, our Hispanic patients, um, you know, they tend to listen to us a little bit more. There is kind of an inherent trust there, not just because of the language, but because of a shared experience, right? And so the same thing obviously goes for the Native American population, African American population, where it's someone who, you know, just doesn't speak your same language, but um, can really identify with your history and what you may be, you know, what your fears are as it relates to the um, healthcare, uh, that the whole healthcare system. Um, and to kind of loop it back around, I mean, I, I think that's where we're seeing the, the shortcoming in this whole COVID. A system um, where you know the healthcare system has been designed, you know, uh, for better or for worse, probably for worse, um, around one um, subsegment of society. And if you're not down with that one segment of society, then you're going to come up short. Um, and we see that in kind of cut and dry numbers in terms of mortality and, and, and cases and, and worse morbidity. Cindy, do you have uh, kind of any insight, you know, between growing up elsewhere and then and coming here and seeing the difference in treatments? Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> it's huge. Like, like for example, in like here, I see like patients, especially like I've worked. It's as I said, like mostly white, and then my fellowship was in North Dakota. Same thing, like mostly like white population. Back in New Mexico, where I did uh, residency. It was like a mixed population, um, but I, I've noticed like in, since I moved to the US, like the patients here, they question more about like why you're doing things and you have to give them a clear explanation. Back in Mexico, uh, yeah, the patients, they just believe what you, you know, you tell them they, you, they have, and you don't even have to give like a huge explanation as you have to give them here. Uh, sometimes you can even say like, yeah, I don't have time. And yeah, they just write them in a paper the diagnosis and yeah, as they say like they go home and they don't even know what happened in the hospital, what they need to take care of. Um, and here, when I was in New Mexico, um, I mean, it was nice because I had the chance to take care more, more, I mean, uh, I took care of most of like Hispanic population um and it's more um i had i don't know how could i say this but it was more rewarding um because i felt like i made a difference because i was able not just to communicate with them but also you know i understand the culture and you know beliefs and and all that but i mean yeah it's uh it is very different, uh, but I, I could say like in my culture, I feel like patients, they have more respect for doctors. I mean here, yeah, I know they do, uh, but nor, I feel like it's in a different level. I'd agree with you, Cindy. I would say all our populations are very trustworthy and pretty much don't question um, especially our elders. It's started to get a little little bit of change in care with the younger population, but and like I think it, I can't remember if it was uh, Antoine who was saying the same thing, like they get discharged from the hospital, like the elders, they'll go home, they'll come back with a bag full of meds and they'll have no idea what they're for or what happened. Um, 
if they're just like, well, this is what I got. <laughs> this is what I have to take. And then you end up as, you know, like my generation taking care of my mom. And even though her being a nurse, there was when she's been in the hospital, um, she ended up with statin associated autoimmune myopathy. So it's a necrotizing myopathy from her taking her statin drug, which is apparently um, running in the genetic gene pool of the Navajos and the Apaches. And so even though her being a nurse, like I didn't want to leave her side in the hospital because I would find out when I would go to work and come back and she'd be like, oh, these people came in and did this and this. I'm like, well, mom, who are they? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> they just told me to do this or I took that pill. I'm like, okay, you need to put your nurse hat on. <laughs> I'm glad you trust them all and that's great. But still like, it's, yeah. it's just funny. You need to give them, empower them to, you can ask questions. It's okay. It's not disrespectful. So. Absolutely. One of the interesting, was someone about to say something? Sorry. No, I, I was just, I was just going to uh, just make a quick point that I think the respect for doctors is good until it runs into limiting health literacy, um, which I think is another kind of big buzzword that's thrown around, but actually quite important, right? And I, and I think, um, you know, having blind faith in doctors makes our job easier in one way, right? Um, but I think... Uh, one thing that that's that and it and of course that ties into the whole socioeconomic factors um but you know having health literacy and having some sense like antoine alluded to um you know people just don't know don't know what they have have no concept of you know have no basic concept of what is going on in their own bodies and if they're following you know uh, a prescription it's kind of just kind of blindly and, you know, they, they can't really connect point A to point B in terms of why am I really doing this? And I found, especially dealing with um, Hispanic patients who maybe their only barrier is uh, language, um, that health literacy can actually uh, account for a lot in terms of uh, patients who are going to, um, you know, they're going to be compliant with their medications they're going to, you know, do the lifestyle modifications. They're going to go to their follow-up appointments. They're going to do all those, all those, they tend to do those things more often if they have a, if they have real medical literacy and if they understand what's actually going on, as opposed to just kind of nodding and smiling, which I won't speak for the, for other cultures, but I know Hispanics tend to do that a lot. Um, you know, I, I know <laughs> being in residency with Steve, You'd always see the patients, you know, nodding and smiling because that's the respectful thing to do with the doctor. And I'd always kind of follow up last, like, did you understand what just happened? I'd ask them in Spanish and most of the time they had no idea, right? <laughs> Our team leaves thinking we've just done the grandest thing for them. <laughs> yeah, they're going to take their medication that has been proven to extend, you know, decrease mortality by 23%. And we're kind of high-fiving and back-slapping. And, you know, they may or may not take the medication, but they have no clue what's going on. Right? Yeah. Um, and it's just something, something else to, to address. Yeah, so uh, the other day, um, I was in the ER and I had this 44-year-old or 45-year-old Hispanic male that had all the classic findings for COVID. Um, but he wasn't quite sick enough for hospitalization. He was doing okay auction wise. And so I had to talk with him about quarantining and um, he's like, well, you know, I have five kids. I do yards for a living. I, I can't not go to work. So I was doing a little bit of kind of digging on that. And the, the disparity of just can, you know, can work from home and can't work from home was pretty large. And then just, that, I mean, the exposure rates for these, you know, public transit jobs or, you know, construction yeah. jobs or, you know, the ones that are predominantly people of color, it's just, the, it's just crazy. So I, I think that's another reason why um, we're seeing such increased um, rates of infection hospitalization there too. It's just the inability to, to stay home. You know? yeah. yeah, I think something, um, I'd have to try to pull it up, but there's some really interesting data that came out when a lot of the stay-at-home orders were happening across multiple states. They looked at the cell phone data to see who uh, could stay home 
and it, it actually like maps geographically where communities of color were more mobile. They're moving around more because they couldn't stay home. They had frontline jobs that they had to go to. They had, um, you know, what you just described, things where they had to show up every day to be able to get that paycheck, right? The jobs that they did do not lend towards remote work from, work from home and Zoom calls and things like that. Um, where if you're in the tech industry or you're in uh, consulting or something where you know, you have that flexibility to switch to home like that. You know, all you really need is a good internet connection and a laptop, uh, if even that. Um, you know, those those subtle things that you wouldn't think about as you roll out these stay-at-home orders are, are what uh, communities are up against. It's, I, I can't stay home. You know, I don't have that luxury, frankly, and it, it is a luxury. Um, I just want to say one more thing, and then I have to go. I think one of, you're one of the kids waking up. Um, but... Uh, it, to that, that stay at home order and, and, and then the education um, aspect. So you have kids that don't have internet access at home. And so they're, they're expected to keep up with school and all these other things. And if you don't have internet connection, it's hard to, to do these things. And, and on normally it's, it's, it's hard, but then in this situation where all of your learning is gonna be online, that's another barrier of, of things that we're going to have to deal with in the future because we're not even 100% guaranteed that schools are going to be, you know, open in the fall. And so that's another year that some of these kids are going to fall further behind. And then, so who, who knows? And that's another aspect of this that's not really accounted for um, as far as like uh, disparities. And that, that's probably more of a, a wealth thing too, because I, I, I work in some rural um, farming communities as well. And I, I, I'm sure they're going to go through the same things as well. But like those are going to be issues that we're not really factoring in is how is that how is that going to affect the future generations when there some of these kids might miss a couple of years of school like i mean as far yeah. and that's just being honest and and those are things that you can't really i don't know how do you factor that in um and that's um the last thing i, I really i need to with these kids <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, great great, great so talking with all you guys. If you guys, if we do this again, let me know. I'd, I'd love to, to get into one of these chats again. See you, man. Peace. Nice to meet you, Ernie. Bye. Right, Thanks a lot, Ernie. Care. Ernie, let's try to link up in the next couple of days and just get your thoughts on, on two more things. Uh, and then uh, we'll get it edited back in. All right. Absolutely. All right. Cool. Take care. To piggyback off of that, guys, it's. Um, I'm on Eastern Standard Time out here, so it's almost 12 o'clock, and I and I'm I gotta be up in the morning for work, so I I, I probably got about another five or ten minutes, and I got okay. So yeah. let's uh, let me bring this last part up there, Antoine, because you'll probably have a lot to say on it. Um, one thing that I saw was fascinating, and literally for years, my mom has been trying to get me to read about this or watch this TED Talk, and I finally did because we were doing this, and it was about childhood trauma and the link to chronic disease. And we're not talking about trauma like, you know, an EDR doc does with physical trauma. Um, it was a, let me find it here. I'm on the spot. So essentially it's any degree of emotional or physical trauma, right? So there's abuse, emotional, physical, sexual abuse. There's um, poverty, like being unable to, um, you know, having to skip a meal because you didn't have food. There was, uh, if you were ever, beat up at school or threatened or anything like that, or had an alcoholic parent or had separated, divorced, absentee parent, that sort of stuff, right? So not like really kind of crazy stuff, right? And the there's like a very, very strong link between that and just chronic diseases. And I'm not just talking about alcoholism, depression, that's sort of like actual cardiovascular disease. And I thought that was bizarre and and then naturally when you break it down there was a, a huge disparity with some of that stuff because you're linking poverty and 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 stuff in um with people of color versus whites and Antoine if you want to touch on that before you got to go it'd be appreciated I mean most definitely I mean experience some type of emotional trauma you know going back to what we talked about as far as the urgent care that we want to open up here you know that emotional trauma aspect is what we're we want to dive into uh, one of the questionnaires with uh, with the trekking in or the triage process will be um, a five to seven question uh, that deals with specific uh, emotional trauma 
you know, a lot of that can kind of stem to other chronic conditions, you know, um, from depression to anxiety to suicide, you know, not just, you know, substance abuse, um, but also uh, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease. But a lot of those things um, we don't really dive into, you know, or so, or of, as a culture, you know, um, African-American culture is so much of you have to, you have to push through or tough it up or don't cry, you know, and, and really the, within the last, I would say three to five years, that narrative is starting to change um, that you, you need to, you know, dive into that emotional aspect. Don't just push through because you, you, you'll never, you'll never grow. You will never get to your maximal potential because that aspect is just as important as, um, you know, breathing just as important as drinking water so I, I think that emotional trauma that you deal with as a child um it's going to come out in some some way shape or form uh typically typically we see it as a struggling as teenagers or as adults you know and we see it um we see it daily so that's most definitely an important aspect of healthcare that i feel like um that um, a lot of cultures, but specifically African-American cultures, we don't talk about it enough as if it's taboo, you know, but I think it's something that needs to be on the front line that we're talking about, um, just like we discussed physical health, you know, emotional health, emotional trauma, it is real, and we're dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, we're dealing with everything that's on this call from COVID, we, you know, we're dealing with mm -hmm. Have you seen an uh, increase in child um, child abuse in your ERs or urgent care because of the like shutdown, quarantining? Well, I haven't seen it more in child abuse. I've seen it more um, uh, spouse abuse as far as um, I've seen an uptake in uh, domestic violence. Um, but as far as like uh, child abuse or anything like that, we haven't seen an uptake here. Um, but uh, I'm sure in areas they are, um, but we, we have seen it as far as uh, you know, domestic violence, as far as um, husband and wife or partner um, violence, we have seen that. Yeah. I don't have the numbers for Arizona or for Phoenix yet, but I know the AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, was talking a lot about be on the lookout for um, increased you know, child abuse cases. Early on when the, um, you know, the city kind of shut down and everything. We did get a few cases back to back in the clinic. Um, I can't say we haven't seen anything recently. Um, but like you said, uh, Brandon, so that it's called the ACE score, the adverse um, childhood events. Right. Uh, fortunately, we don't have the time to do that in our clinic for every single patient. We do have a licensed social worker that's specifically in the PEDS department. So we, as we uncover things during our interviews and stuff, we're able to get them into our um, social worker and she does counseling and she's able to do that. But I think that this all ties in together with COVID, being stuck at home, domestic violence between mom and dad or partners. Um, and then subsequently them taking it out on children is definitely, there's gonna be an up click in, you know, chronic disease, depression, other mental health disorders because of all this. Yeah. Danny, Cindy, anything you want to say on child trauma? <laughs> well, nothing, I, that's fine. I like, I like kids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not your own. No, but I, uh, but, but talking about, um, not, not, not specific to child trauma, but, um, but in terms of emotional trauma, um, in terms of the research I'm doing um, in terms of looking at protein levels and metabolite levels, we're working with the Jackson Heart Study, which if you're not familiar with the Jackson Heart Study, if you're familiar with the Framingham Heart Study or the Framingham Risk Score or anything like that, um, that was organized, that was uh, the Framingham Risk Score, for example, it was uh, a risk score for cardiovascular disease incidents that was uh, done through the Framingham Heart Study, Framingham being a suburb of Boston. Um, and that study was started in the late, uh, in the early 1950s. Um, and as you might imagine, being a suburb of Boston, it's all white folks. 
Um, and so the Jackson Heart Study is a longitudinal epidemiologic study like Framingham, but in Jackson, Mississippi. So it's all self-identified African-Americans, uh, which that was started in the year 2000. So we have blood samples from the year 2000 and we're looking, we're analyzed protein levels, metabolite levels, trying to see how they're associated with diabetes, heart disease, really anything. Um, and it's a, it's a really well phenotype study, meaning it's all types of, you know, they ask the participants, these are all, you know, kind of healthy as we refer to them as kind of free range human beings just out in the community. Um, uh, so, you know, and so they're asked a lot of questions in terms of, you know, um, do you feel, you know, beyond the typical, you know, what's your blood pressure, diabetes history, hypertension, et cetera. Um, there's questions related to, you know, do you hear gunshots at night? Um, have you felt discriminated against? Um, you know, how many people live in your house? You know, job security, uh, education, attainment, income levels, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so with the blessing of my uh, PI, actually, I'm, I'm starting to look at how um, anxiety levels, depression levels, and um, responses to discrimination, you know, self-perceived discrimination may be affecting protein levels and metabolite levels in the blood. Um, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear that those things lead to chronic disease, as Brandon was mentioning. Um, I think more and more we're getting more kind of hard science evidence that it does lead to those things. And the, and the idea where proteomics and metabolomics come in is trying to find what's the mechanism there. Right. Is, is it is it that hypertension is leading to, you know, more heart disease or are there other mechanisms? Right. Where if you live in an area where you're always feeling discriminated against or you feel like you can't progress in your life right? because all you know is Jackson, Mississippi, um, you end up dying earlier than the national average. Is it because of the high blood pressure um, or is it something else? Right. That we just don't know about yet. Like essentially being stuck in the fight or flight response. Right. It, exactly. And, and is that different? You know, is that a different stress than for, you know, for example, obesity, we know that's a hyperinflammatory state. Right. Um, but is this kind of always stuck in the, in the fight or flight response, um, kind of high mental stress. Is that a different mechanism leading to heart disease and these other issues as opposed to, you know, your kind of standard obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, you know. Um, and so while I can't speak about kids per se, because this study was 18 and over, um, I think, you know, um, we are trying to delve into, you know, the, 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 um, the, residu the, the residue of childhood trauma um, and, you know, kind of family instability, work instability, kind of life instability as a whole, and trying to connect it physiologic to, you know, kind of physiologic effects. Uh, and so awesome. hopefully we get some interesting findings there. But that's kind of where that's yeah, Let me pause here. Antoine, do you want to do any kind of closing thoughts about that or anything else you want to say before you can get out of here? Like even yeah. thoughts on future or what we can do to, to fix things and get you out of here? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that this was I think that this was amazing. You know, Brent, I appreciate you um, kind of facilitating this deal. I uh, appreciate getting to meet each and every one of you guys, um, you know, doing what you're doing out there on the front lines. And, you know, I take my hat off to you, you know. But um, as far as anything to change um, offhand, I don't have anything. Um, what do you think we can do to start uh, improving things in general? Healthcare, <clears throat> closing that gap. Yeah, I think the main thing is closing that gap is really just just trying to find out ways to be able to gain trust in the community and also to educate our community. Um, as far as educating our community and also being educated by our community of ways that they feel um, that we, we're missing or, or where the gaps are that we can connect with. I think not so much talking, um, talking when needed, but also knowing when to listen. And I think uh, putting all of these things together and uh, trying not to do it um, as if it's a one-man show, because this is going to take a collective effort. And I, I think we can most definitely move the needle in the right direction. Great. Thanks, Antoine.
All right, guys. Have a good one, man. Thanks, man. Bye. Have a good night. You too. All right. Did anyone else have uh, anything to say about the whole Aces trauma, the work Danny's doing that we had to kind of cut off? Um. Yeah. No. I. I just think that it's a the psychological piece. Um. And that that psychological journey that people take from childhood to adulthood is so important. Um. And trying to be aware of that as physicians, um, as clinicians, as leaders in our communities is important. Um. Because we often, you know, like I think as Antoine who said, it, it's very prevalent in African American communities and many communities of color. Um that mental health issues, and this is prevalent in the white community as well, that mental health issues are uh, under-respected, right? Um, we always hear about this mental health scourge in the U.S., and we need to do more about it, but nobody puts dollars towards it. Uh, nobody actually, you know, looks at the problem, says we need to fix this. This needs to be covered by our insurance and something that all doctors are trained on better. Um, it's We're still very stuck in the, you have a problem? Well, great, I have a pill for that. Um, so it really needs to move down the line, uh, and we need to actually stop doing the, you know, we address, we see the problem, we have research that says the problem's there, but we don't do anything about it. Um, so yeah, that just needs to change. All right. Any, uh, I guess it's probably getting late for you two over there too. <laughs> Any other closing thoughts on closing this gap, getting things right, COVID-19 in general? I think, um, you know, and I probably shouldn't hop in here first to say this, but I just want to echo what Antoine said, which is education. To yeah. me, that's just such a major issue here. Um, because as Danny said, there's a lot we didn't know and there's still a lot we don't know, um, but we're learning. We're learning every day. We're getting smarter about this. Um, and as we get smarter, we need to be telling everybody we know uh, as soon as we can, um, and, and allow them to make the best decision for themselves. It's not about, you know, that blind faith in physicians, but it's about getting good information from good sources and making, trying to do your best to make the right decision, uh, for the health of yourself and your family. I, I would just like to take this moment. I wanted to do it earlier to give a shout out to the nurses in the ICU and the respiratory therapists. Um, they they bore a lot of the brunt, and they were really kind of, uh, kind of, if you will, throwing themselves in the grenade in a lot of situations. As Steve knows, I didn't always have the greatest relationship with nurses during my residency career. Uh, it was a bit of a love-hate relationship. I think we each loved how much we hated each other. Uh, um, but. Uh, and obviously, I, I grew out of that, you know, pretty quickly into fellowship. But in all seriousness and all jokes aside, um, uh, you know, thank your nearest ICU nurse and nearest respiratory therapist. Um, they really are the, I would say, they're the bravest ones that I've seen, at least, in all of this. Um, anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. I think the uh, the forgotten group too is the EVS workers. Oh yeah. They uh, I mean, sure. they're going in every room and cleaning up everything. Yeah. So I think True. they're underappreciated. Well, no, I just want to say that. Uh, I mean, we're still like far, and we need to learn a lot about COVID. Um, and it is hard on us as physicians, like going to work and being in so much uncertainty that you go and you don't know what is going to happen, like uh, how things are going to change. And that is stressful. Like, I mean, I've been uh, working as an attending for three years and I mean, it's not that I know everything, but I feel, I was feeling comfortable until the COVID. <laughs> 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 uh, but what I could say is like, it helps to talk with your colleagues and, and I feel yeah. like Everybody needs that. Um, we need to take care of ourselves as well. It's in, we have a lot of lives in our hands. That would be my closing thought. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I think it's been super helpful. It's been kind of lonely. Not, I mean, you have your colleagues at work to talk about it, 
but it's also nice to like hear from people across the country in different specialties to know like we're still all going through the same thing even though whether you're working with kids or adults or you know mm -hmm. moms who are expecting it's just and then us too coming home to our families not like am I safe to be around my husband? Am I safe to be around my friends? Um, it's, I mean, it's nice to, to talk to everybody and to realize my feelings are being shared amongst everybody too. Very much so. Yeah, I think the craziest part about the beginning of this too is we didn't know our level of spread. So I would, I would stay in our bedroom and if I wanted to come out of the, the bedroom and see the kids, I'd wear an N95 mask. That we just happened to have from various painting projects and yeah that was tough and the, you know i had a one she was probably one at the time probably no less than one she hadn't even turned one yet so she was mm. super confused why dad's wearing a mask and she tried to pull it off me and you know yeah it's been wild yeah all right anyone else anything to say no thank you for arranging this brendan um, that's been fun. Think, we'll we'll yeah, try to get uh, some more some more topics and uh, things to talk about for future ones. Yeah, it's Danny's <laughs> bedtime over there. <laughs> Widow Danny tired. Overdue. I'm still recovering from your wedding, Steve. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that Claire, near, that near death experience will do. Claire, that was like two years ago. Well, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Brandon. We'll see all you. Right, nice meeting you thanks, all. Thanks, everybody. Take all care. Right. Nice.